absolutely ridiculous. Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash podcast. We're delighted to welcome John Williams, Australian international who won the World Championships in 2001 with his beloved country in Melbourne. He reached a career high of 15, won six PSA World Tour events, including the Grasshopper Cup, which is his now residential country of Switzerland. And he's a Swiss national coach and commentator for PSA Squash TV. John Williams, thanks a million, man, for coming on. How are you doing? Thanks, Arthur. It's uh, fantastic to be here and, and join you guys. Uh, I wasn't aware that you had such a, uh, a fantastic podcast going until you contacted me. And then I, uh, I jumped online and had a listen. And uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed uh, the style that you're bringing across. Three, three people bumping uh, off one another. Um, I think uh, there seems to be a bit of that going on in general in the, in the podcast world. And it works really well when the vibe's like as good as, as it is here. Oh, cheers, John. You're making me blush, man. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh it's really you've had a good uh a, you know a good lineup of different people coming on obviously you know you've got you've had big name players come on there but but also other people that are in, in an administrative sense or they have uh, positions in squash where they have a lot of experience uh behind the scenes perhaps and, and it's a great mix to to bring all those different types of people i think yeah coming up to a year so a little lockdown hobby a year ago is finally paying off so no it's and it's great to have you on today. So um, I think Arthur wanted to start with just going back to the start of your career in Australia. So do you want to give us some background on how you get into the sport and um, what your sort of origins were? Yeah, so I, I think I started, uh, I can remember I started pretty, um, you know, getting more into it when I was about seven or eight years old because my, my dad was was the squash coach at the club where I grew up in, in Melbourne in the eastern suburbs called Eastland. And that was a pretty big centre as there were many, many big centres back in those days because squash was just booming in, in Australia and in the big cities. And uh, it was booming no less in Melbourne as well. And um, Eastland was, yeah, it was a pretty vibrant club in that in that area as there were many other clubs. Uh, I remember Doncaster and Lilydale, they were all sort of in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and squash was on the rise and uh, it was a great time to get started, obviously, because you had, um, you know, we had obviously Jeff Hunt was the, you know, the kingpin that everybody looked up to. But uh, even at, back in then 1980, heading into the early 80s, you had Dittmar came in and Ross Thorne and uh, Greg Pollard and I remember all these names, Glenn Brumby. And then came, of course, probably the golden era of Australian squash with the, with the Martin brothers, Rodney Isles, Nan Caro, Anthony Hill. I mean, it was just a, a plethora of players that, that, that obviously, you know, in, it was Australia's strongest era in terms of depth and, and numbers. We had at one stage, we had six players in the top 10 in the world, I think in 1991. Um, so growing up in, in that kind of environment, it was, it was pretty easy to get um, intoxicated with, with wanting to play a sport like that, um, become good at it. Uh, and I had really good people around me. Uh, I had a, a guy called Eddie French who, who's passed, he passed away now in, in uh, 2014, but he was like my, my, you know, grandfather mentor to begin with. And then I had a guy called John Larkin, who was the father of, he's the father of Josh Larkin, who was a squash player himself. Um, and he had a big uh, influence uh, on my starting sort of days. And uh, the other big one that, you know, Stuart was uh, Roger Flynn. Roger Flynn was, a prominent coach uh, in, in Melbourne in those days. And he looked after all the Victorian junior squads. So I spent a lot of time with Roger doing patterns and, and listening to him talk about the strategy of the game and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was just so many different angles coming at you um, and giving you, uh, you know, really an oceanic view of, of how, what, you know, how to become a good player. And there's many different ways to, to do it. Uh, and and obviously I probably from the age of 12, 13, 14, you know, I started to get quite quite ambitious and quite driven and, and then start training pretty hard like uh, like everybody else did, especially in those days. I mean, everybody was running. You're running five, six days a week and doing solo, uh, playing games, and you were spending, you know, you're spending hours already at a very young age uh, training pretty hard, you know. And uh, that was that was my background in the 80s. Uh, my mum... My mum and dad both worked at the centre, but they split up when I was very young. But my mum continued to work at the centre, so I was, you know, one of those kids where mum's working at the centre. So the obvious place to go is to the squash centre straight after school, and I pretty much did that right throughout the eighties, all the way through till uh, nineteen eighty nine. And then I took the step that most Australian squash players did in those days. Once you 
got to uh, the end of your school years, uh, you, you sort of joined the AIS where um, those aforementioned players that I talked about before, the Martin brothers, in particular Rodney Martin, Rodney Isles, Anthony Hill, all these guys had been at the Institute under the uh, tutorage of Jeff Hunt and Ken Hisco and Heather Mackay. Um, so that was the obvious sort of step to take in those days to get to the next level. And I went there when I was 17 and I was at the Institute from 1990 till 1993, the first part of my uh, PSA playing career. Uh, and then unfortunately, yeah, in 94, I got struck down with glandular fever. So that, that sort of, uh, that stopped me in my tracks at uh, 21 years of age for a few years. And um, that's probably, a, you know, a pretty, Quick summary of, of being, you know, starting with seven all the way through to joining PSA, getting on the tour, and and then unfortunately getting struck down with it with a with a, a mystery illness um, that still to this day is a little bit of a mystery illness, and uh, and then having to sort of go off and uh, and do other stuff and, and wait till my body had recovered enough to get back uh, back in there, which wasn't until 1997 that I rejoined the tour and was ready to go again. So you mentioned earlier on about you know the running six days a week, and I remember I think Stuart might as well when we were young, when we were young uh, and starting out at the tour. And I remember hearing stories about, you know, the legendary Australian squash players and, and you were one of them in terms of the, like the workload and, and some of the training sessions that you used to do. And uh, there's, there's one myth about the 400s that I believe a record you might hold, <laughs> which have you, have you a sense of what your record of 400s might be? Oh, it's not a myth. It's a, it's a fact. It's a it's a stone cold fact. Fifty five uh, or something? No, no, no. I wish it was fifty five. I always said the only thing that I regret is on the day where I where I did thirty two four hundreds, um, is that I stopped because I I felt like um, we'd been doing a lot of four hundreds for a few months and and it was just building up, building up, and we were doing three times a week. Was doing uh twenty four hundreds always on a seventy five. Uh, pace and then 45 rest so we set run 75 or thereabouts 45 recovery and then go again and we're doing it on that cycle started you know i probably started with about 12 or 14 built up to 20 and then it got to 25 but i, I was always a pretty I, I suppose i had a natural affinity for running i was a good runner when i was 15 16 years of age even in the school races and stuff like that so um yeah i could feel when i started to, when i was just rolling those numbers over i was just getting yeah i was getting stronger and stronger and then I felt one day, yeah, I want to, I want to go, I want to see how far I can go. And I got to 25, and then I said, okay, I'm going to go further. I want to get to 30. But actually, in doing that, I also started running faster. So I brought the time down to 70, 69, 68. It was just getting quicker all the way. And in the end, I think I was running like a 63 and a 62 to finish. So I sort of, I, I ran myself out in the end, at, at doing 32. But maybe, who knows, could have done perhaps 40 and or even 50, and then just put it beyond all doubt. <laughs> Just uh, I just finished watching that that video of you talking to Joey about this um, on the PSA the PSA video that you you spoke about this exact thing on. So I had my my podcast research was uh, this I, I knew that answer Arthur. Well, I was you, I was just you, you weren't from, studying. I was I was talking <laughs> from the the lens of the eighteen year old that heard this story that obviously was thirty two and turned into fifty five like that <laughs> as as all myths of giants do you know yeah listen 55 brilliant well done by the way and it sounds like you could have done a few more <laughs> yeah but i suppose that type of training um obviously we, we're sorry and we we knew about you know your illness i remember when i first met you in, in the early noughties but um that kind of was it as fair to say that type of training and the volume that you did which was incredible as it was um it was had its part to play and role to play in the glandular fever in the few years off of recovery. Uh, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest, Arthur. I, I think that it's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, it seems the yeah. obvious thing, you know, the whole, the whole overtraining syndrome, and I, and I probably, and I definitely got accused of that by people that knew me quite well and whatever. And yeah, I did. I mean, I love to train, and I, and I was fanatical about it, and 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 to a degree, still am today, even though I'm, I'm kind of still fighting uh, or sort of dealing with. Um, bodily issues which have slowed me down certainly in my older age now um, and then you have to adapt and, and train accordingly but but the fanaticism and the passion to do it is still there but yeah. I just feel if you look at a lot of other sportsmen in it really really hard intensive sports that require gigantic volumes of training at a high intensity triathletes and 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 the cyclists of the Tour de France just as an example I mean these people are pushing themselves you know beyond the brink 
sometimes maybe with a bit of help from a few uh, assistive sub substances and stuff, <laughs> but, <laughs> but hopefully not anymore. But um, yeah, I think that it's just, it's, it's one of those things where your physiology and your biological makeup, you know, just um, can have you perhaps, um, you know, perhaps you, you just, your body's not quite cut out to do this sort of stuff. And, and maybe, maybe I was, I, I got sort of tarred as one of the unlucky ones in that sense. And, uh, and that, that's been a bit of a problem for me. Um, especially as I've, I've gotten older as well. So I just got to really keep a check on it and, and, and roll with it and, and accept that there are certain uh, hindrances there that I, that I should not try to push too, too, uh, too hard. But I, I mean, I've watched a lot of other people that train tremendous amounts and, and, you know, then, you know, you could turn it the other way and say, why do they get away with it? You know, in that case. Yeah. How did it manifest itself? Was it something where you sort of, just started to feel gradually a little bit weaker or were you feeling stronger and stronger and then it just sort of hit you out of nowhere and knocked you for six, like overnight almost? Yeah, absolutely, Stuart. It was just one of, it was a, it was a um, lightning bolt really uh, moment because I, early 94, I'd been actually uh, cut out by the Institute at the end of 93 uh, because in those days, obviously the level and the benchmark of what Australian squash expected and those running the Institute was very high. And I was one of these players that was sort of bumping around world ranking 60 to 50 to 40 to 50. And, and if you weren't, you know, top 20 heading towards top 10, they were looking for the next ones that are, that are going to do it. And uh, so they, they sort of gave me my, my marching orders, but I mean, I was okay with it. I understood why. And, and it was perfectly uh, legitimate their reasoning to sort of say, you've got to go your own way now and support yourself. So I went to Germany and uh, I was in a very, I was in the north of Germany training hard with a guy called Byron Davis, who, who some you, you guys might remember, but he got yeah. to 14 in the world as well. He, he was the, the head of Australian squash at the Institute uh, later after his career as well and trained with him and, and had a really good phase, really good block of training, had some, a couple of good results uh, end of April. That um, were one Ciatat uh, Barcelona at the end of April. And then I won the Danish Open. Um, played a, a local tournament in Germany that was quite big though it was called the German Masters won that beat three top 20 players so this all happened just before I got glandular fever and then I just basically came home from a, a local tournament feeling a bit off then I went into this you know the typical glandular fever if you have a, a, a decent dose of it is to get heavy heavy sweats big headaches and that can last for for about a week and that's what happened to me um, and I was in bed for a week and, and then I went to the doctor uh, I didn't really I wasn't suspecting anything in particular and then he and then he he said to me you've got glandular fever so you need to rest now for for two months up to three months and really take it easy uh and then you should be okay and then it like most cases of glandular fever it sort of it fades away and then and people get on with their with their lives even if they're a, a professional sports person and uh that's what i did uh waited the three months started to play again actually felt all right played um a local tournament in melbourne where i actually ended up i played paul price in the final when he, he was very young at that time, he was only about 18 years of age. But the, I still remember it was in July 1994 and I played him and I was expected to win, went two love up and then I hit a wall. Physically, I just stopped, could not move, ended up sort of scraping through in five. And uh, then, yeah, then all the problems began. Like I just I started to get swollen glands and, and felt really off. And, and then I went into a, a long phase of searching for, for answers, basically visiting uh, – a hematologist visiting all sorts of alternative medicine doctors and just never really uh, finding the, the, you know, the, the solution, the, the holy grail to get better. It was a really, really tough uh, year, year and a half sort of uh, in the wilderness, to be honest. That, yeah, that sounds, sounds brutal. I know Peter Marshall had a similar kind of period of time like that as well. I spent a lot of time with him about 20 years ago now. And, and then w once he got to the end of that phase of like 18 months, he obviously had a little bit more of an extended period of time off the tour. Was there ever a doubt in your mind that you would come back? Or was it always, you were always like, no matter what, I'm coming back here? Uh, no, I did. I doubted it because uh, after a year, um, it, it flattens you, you know, it just completely flattens you mentally. And you, and you, and you do wonder, like, how on earth am I ever? Because you, all, you, all of your uh, physical attributes and strengths are gone after one year of doing nothing, that's for sure. And I, I, was, I was doing literally nothing. I was just not able to. To, to get get into a jog or go for a run or do any kind of exercise without my my in, let's say my internal thermometers would just go off you know I'd either be too cold too hot glands would feel off felt a bit of a headache you always felt like you're getting a little bit ill 
but you never actually get ill, but you feel like you're going to get ill. And, uh, and that just went on and on and on. And, uh, every attempt that sort of trying to get back into it was, was, was met with it, with that sort of hard hammer to the head, fall down and then stand up uh, to try and do it again. And, and so after a year, you sort of think, gee whiz, maybe I'm not ever going to get back to that level of fitness. Maybe I might have to just hope that I can get to a level where I've, you know, I'm healthy and feeling good enough just to coach and, and be able to earn some money if I want to stay in the sport or then just go and go to uni and do something else, you know? And uh, so I had those thoughts definitely uh, mid 95 for sure um, until, until the end of 95. And then I consciously, I think, yeah, I made it, I made a step where I said, right, I'm really going to step by step. I want to haul myself back off the mat and and really try to find a way to get, get better. And was very focused on my diet um, training step-by-step always trying to increase a little bit. Uh, And then in a, I had a very, let's say I had a good phase from mid 96 until the, the, the end of 96. And, and that's where the, the belief system started to change. I started to see that it is possible to train again. It is possible to do the, the, the kind of hard work that I need to do to, to sustain, to be able to be fit enough to get back on the tour. I, I started to get that belief back. Yeah. And then I guess you were, uh, I mean, when you got that belief back, that started your almost like a second coming and you had probably your most successful period of time. Uh, as a player after that I mean cementing your place in history by becoming a world champion representing Australia in Australia which must have been unbelievable in your home city as well right yeah yeah I mean that's sort of uh definitely the the culmination you, you know of all the hard work and um and and every you know all the blood sweat and tears so to speak of, of everything you do to sort of uh be lucky enough to be a member of that team um and I say lucky I really felt lucky because you know I could have easily it could, they could have easily selected Joseph Knipe at that time as well. It was very, very close between the two of us. So to get the nod um, and, uh, and, and be able to, to wear the green and gold, so to speak, uh, I, I felt very, very privileged and, and fortunate. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice – obviously, it's a nice thing to, to look back on and uh, to have that um, on, the, on the trophy mantle that we, we won that world team championship. I mean, I was in a great team with uh, Palmer, Boswell and Ricketts uh, – sorry, Palmer, Boswell and Pricey um, – Ricketts was another one, obviously, that was knocking right on the door at that time as well. So, um, yeah, that that was yeah, – I sort of look at that as the culmination of everything. But in terms of, um, you know, playing career, you know, you've got loads and loads of matches along the way and, 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 and different results um, that, you, that you feel proud of perhaps or result or certain periods where you feel like you really performed well and executed well. And, and, and that's what, you know, got me up uh, to the, the, the highest world ranking and sort of in that – I was, I was in the bracket of sort of top 30 for, from mid-99 until about 02, somewhere around there. And then what led, did it uh, sort of resurface or was it just you naturally coming to the end of your career when you decided to retire in 02? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, no it was another, another bout of, of uh, fatigue, but uh, a different one. It was, I, ha- I picked up a virus called the Coxsackie virus, which, which is known to be a, a cause of sort of post-viral syndrome problems. And no doubt that's where the history of having glandular fever and having that long-term problem before, that, that definitely was a scarring on the system, which didn't make it easy for me when I got knocked down with Coxsackie virus in, in early 2004. So I was 31, sort of 31 and a half years old. But I certainly, at, at that stage, I was playing really good squash. I was felt like I was still playing the best squash that I'd played until then. Um, and I didn't have any intentions of of hanging up the racket at that stage. I wanted to continue to play PSA and I'd set the goal in, in early 04 that I wanted to be in the Commonwealth Games team because the Commonwealth Games, of course, was in Melbourne in 2006. So that was a big goal in early 04 to train and continue un, until 06. And, and then I saw perhaps um, the, the PSA career that might sort of stop shortly after that, perhaps when I was 34 or 35 years old. Um, but uh, that, yeah, all those plans got thro- thrown out the window in, in early 04 because I got uh, I got fatigue problems again and then and, and it was uh, it really uh, yeah it's, it completely uh, ended my playing career because that that lasted for a good two and a half years before I was back uh, playing any sort of form of uh, competitive squash again so uh, that, that was a really rough sort of patch oh. as well. Was it much tougher to deal with mentally than it was the f- first time around not that any of them would have been easy at all I could imagine it's brutal. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Because um, I, in that last phase of 03, 04, I had some, some really good results and played some really good squash. And I, I felt like I wanted to have, you know, I'd sort of slipped down the rankings. Um, I wasn't 
I wasn't playing as many tournaments as I'd played in the previous years because I also was trying to hold down a, a coaching sort of position in Bedutz in Liechtenstein uh, to make sure that, you know, that the money was coming in because money was always an issue in those days. And uh, it was a tough balance to sort of do that job, keep them happy, and at the same time, you know, train and, and look after myself and, and, and get enough games in with guys like Lars Harms, uh, who was my main training partner back then. Um, uh, but I, I felt like squash wise, yeah, I, I was able to, I was doing it when you get, as you know, as you guys know, when you get to 31, 32, you don't need as many, I don't think as many matches as what you've had previously. You just need to be finely tuned and, and doing those things that you need to do to, to keep your, you know, to keep your level up, uh, where, where, where you, where you feel it's, uh, at that, at that right, right. Uh, but you know, the training levels, that you feel you need to do, it's, it's a lot easier to manage, I think, in terms of what should I do? You know, you know you've got a lot more knowledge at 31, 32. So I was gutted that, that, um, that, it, that it got sort of stopped in its tracks. Um, but at first, I think the first few months, I, I still thought like, yeah, I'll get over it and, and I'll, I'll come back. And I think probably definitely by the end of 04, I started to, the ghosts of having the, the glandular fever and all those problems before, they really started to hit home. And then I started to realise like this could, this could go two years, two and a half years, and then I definitely won't be coming back because I'll be 34 and uh, it'll be too late, you know? No goatee around for inspiration at that point. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you mention, I've been, I have a pretty regular chat with, with Greg about, about various things and uh, it is astonishing um, to see that he just can, he's so keen and, and, and still so passionate and, uh, and he's raring to go next week, I can assure you that, because he's, he's telling me he's feeling very good. So uh, I'm very interested and uh, on the edge of my seat to see how he's going to perform next week. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. I'd love to see him get, get one big, massive result to the tournament. It'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it'd be good. It, we're just, the game seems, you know, is probably lacking that, that player outside of all, the, all the, the known Egyptians, you know, who can sort of shake the, the top of the tree up a little bit and, uh, and give it a good rattle. Uh, that, that's, that, that would be nice for, for the men's squash, that's for sure. Yeah, it seems like Asal doesn't seem to matter to him whether they're compatriots or not. He's definitely keen to rattle things up, but <laughs> you're right. Um, just someone with his with Gautier's pedigreeing personality is great for the tour and the longer he can stay around. Similar with other guys that have been around, like great to still see Wilstrop playing at high level. And um, I mean, that's one of the ways that games changed over the last 20 years is that people are extending their careers and it's now not so strange to see people playing into their mid to late 30s. But what are the other things you see in terms of the way the game's not necessarily progressed, but certainly changed over that period? Yeah, just touching on that, what you said, Stu, with um, the, 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 the rehabilitative um, and, and aftermatch recovery processes and the science behind it has improved dramatically. I mean, the players are just so, they get looked after so, you know, so much better than, than certainly when I was playing in the nineties and, and even you, you, uh, you guys in the, in the early noughties, like you said, uh, Arthur, that everybody's got almost a personal trainer that they can work with. Everybody's got, um, you know, physiotherapist or an osteopath or, uh, or Chinese doctor that everybody's just got this team around them. And that, is definitely a reason along with just doing better, using better training methods with, with recovery sort of training that people are, are very, you know, a lot more disciplined about doing now than what they used to be. Um, that is improved dramatically. And I would probably add to that, that what I've seen in Switzerland, which is also a very important thing not to forget is, and I think it's been also perhaps in the, in the UK also, um, is that the school sports system that we have in, in Europe is, is that, that breeding ground for just teaching young players how they have to train, how they have to look after themselves. It starts at the age of 12 or 13. And that is a, that's made a big difference in terms of players just coming onto the tour when they're 18 or 19. They're a lot more professional to begin with. They, they know, they, you know they have to stretch afterwards, they have to stretch before, they have to do their recovery uh, trainings and not just you know, the, the, you know, the harder trainings you have to do. And I mean, I don't know about you, uh, you guys, but recovery training in the 80s was going for another run. Yeah. Another twenty five four hundreds. Yeah, it's Go also ahead. a lot easier to access the information as well. Like going back the to the internet. Sport. Yeah, yeah. It felt like the only way you really heard or knew how to train was by 
what so and so was doing, or you heard these rumors or myths like your four hundreds, but fifty five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was hard to get access. Like you couldn't just look up training principles or things like that on the internet; it just didn't exist. So it yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, I was even, I was about to say now you can literally like Paul Cole just introduced his and you know he's creating a a squash training program for people, and then you have just about every pro doing these video blogs and all these things that how they train, how they recover a day in the life. You know, there was maybe one video every, what, five years that came out. I feel like when I was a kid that you'd watch. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think Chris, like I was thinking that exactly as Chris was saying it, like just, I was thinking about Paul Cole as well. When you got players like that, who, who, you know, were really trying to promote that style of things as well, like training as a philosophy as well, not just the, the game of squash itself, but stay fit, stay healthy. Um, there's a lot there's it's just everything's so accessible isn't it so it's uh it's it's much better for for the younger squash player and they're learning it much faster and uh, uh i think I, I don't know like what you guys think but it's interesting when you, I, I just know without naming names there was there was a, a heck of a lot of hard party goers uh also still on the tour in the in the in the 90s you know in the mid 90s all the way through to the end of the 90s and i just i just know from being at, at squash TV and then you know when you do squash TV you're there until the end so you see all the players and you see everybody that loses and when players are losing these days they're just they're, there's no more parting I mean they, they're, they're on court the next day they're training they're, they're already focused on the next event you know and that that, that has improved dramatically that players are just extremely professional about what their role is as a sportsman and, and how they respect that as well I think I think that's changed that's like evolved in all sports I mean even if yeah. Premier League soccer and you know you'd see like the footballers like the man you, your Steve Bruce's and Gary Pallister's and Teddy Sheringham's, like they'd be going off for a few points at, and fish and chips at the end of a you know <laughs> Saturday football match and like go back to training on Tuesday, Wednesday. So I, I think across, I think the sporting culture has has changed dramatically over the last twenty years. Yeah, definitely. I, I love this. Um, I've got. I love this saying that I heard from a from a because I'm a massive AFL uh, fanatic. That's another thing I'm fanatical about is Aussie Rules football. But uh, there was a coach back in the early '70s who was a groundbreaker and an innovator, and he had guys training like ridiculously hard. And he said that uh, this is obviously at the time where when people went to the you know when athletes went to the Olympics, if you couldn't earn money, so you had to remain an amateur to even just go and compete at the Olympic Games back in the late '60s and early '70s. And as soon as you became a professional, you were earning money. Then you were on the pro tour and not, you know, not doing amateur things anymore, like the honour of doing the Olympic Games. And he said that uh, the, the difference between a professional and amateur back then has nothing to do with money. That's a fallacy. He said that the difference is that the, the, the professional is 100% dedicated to the elimination of all errors. And uh, I think that when you think about that sort of that saying, that's where things have improved, like the, 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 the attention to detail in terms of eliminating all of the things and, and, and doing everything as right as possible and, and, and really eliminating the mistakes of the past has improved dramatically, you know? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that touches a little bit back to what you talked about, being a 31-year-old, knowing more about yourself and what kind of training was going to be good for you at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, a really, it was really hard to... Um, obviously a very tough pill to swallow um and at that stage i've had the you know like many squash players i think that and, and there'd be a fair few squash players out there that if they're listening to this podcast they could relate to it very much as well but i didn't i was living in switzerland so if i could land you know after my squash career i knew if i land a good job and, and i you know i can sort of create myself a bit of a reputation as a coach i'll be able to earn money and then steadily you know be able to have an income and, and be okay but at that stage i didn't have a lot of money and I had uh, fatigue problems and I had no job prospects. And, it, you know, and then I started to think, gee whiz, like if this doesn't improve, I'm going to have to go back to Australia and just and hit the restart button and, and, and do something else. Because financially, it was just getting that stage in 2005 where, where it, was getting, it was getting tougher and tougher to sort of think, well, how am I going to afford to live in a country like this? Because it's so bloody expensive, you know. Um, and we have with the pandemic, obviously, at the moment, you've got all these players who you know, fringe players who you have to, you know, do coaching to support themselves to do other things. They, they, they've been forced into some really tough decisions now, I would imagine, about how do they keep their careers going, you know, and, and without having to cut it short because they simply just can't afford to be a squash professional anymore if they don't have good financial support. 
Yeah, that's that's brutal. Um, you're living in Zurich. You're the national coach of Switzerland, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, a match that you played in your later thirties against a good, good <laughs> mate of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was um, unbelievable. So John Williams is playing against Derek Ryan, two guys similar <laughs> age, similar era, and you know you what you guys. That's about ten years ago now. Uh, 2009 uh, or 2014, four, mate. It was 07 in Rimini in Italy. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, you, you to talk about trying to just cut, like, kill me, but death by a thousand cuts bringing up that match. I can't believe it. That's just, you've thrown me under the bus, mate. <laughs> Sorry, man. But that was one of the most inspiring <laughs> matches I've ever seen. And it was two guys slogging it out that were, it's funny how you perceive age when you're younger. I would have been, what, 20, 21. And Derek was, late 30s I probably thought he was like treated him as if he was like nearly 50 the way I'm talking about it. I remember at the time just thinking, <laughs> he's really old but uh that was an unbelievable so what that was close to two hours or maybe just over two hours 10 8 in the fifth old high ho English scoring and yeah, yeah nine five in the fifth to get to you know you know with the numbers Stuart will know these numbers off off the top of his head as well now nine five eight, in, but it was eight love or eight one in the third john was it what, why 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 do you go seriously oh i remember what i, I mean just, if i wasn't on a public podcast i'd be using a lot more colorful australian language that's you can sure. use that language listen we can, we, you know i don't you know our, our 42 listeners are, are, are okay with that <laughs> but what I'll never forget is I came off the court against uh, uh, De- uh, Detweiler. Is that right? Uh, Dead Villa, Detweiler. yeah. And I yeah. lost in five and I was devastated. And I think it was down. To, sorry, John, this is actually, <laughs> yeah. it's actually more. I, I'm, it's all coming back to me now that I just, you know. We, we do this to all our guests. We bring up their most haunting, <laughs> yeah. their most haunting yeah. loss and, and oh, we yeah. let Dig- them relive it. Don't worry. Yeah. And so, oh, well, if this, if this, if if, the, if these are the ghosts in my closet, Chris, I'm happy. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'll never forget because I remember having a team meeting earlier on, and it was like, Arthur, you gotta, you gotta take this fella down. And we, I knew it was going to be close. I knew it was going to be hard. You know, we were, you know, and anyways, so I lost three two, and I'm devastated. And I go across, and it's like two love to Switzerland, two love to John, eight one, or maybe eight love. It was eight one when eight, I was three. Eight, eight three, eight three, eight three. Okay, eight, eight three. three. He's got eight, a few five. And I, I remember all of them. Three match balls. 55-32-8381. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll never forget that comeback. But I'll also never forget how you both were after the match. Absolutely bleeding goosed. Like, uh, it was unbelievable. It was very inspiring as a 20-year-old watching that. Shit, that's a couple Yeah, of I was 34 long. and he was 37. And uh, that's... So, yeah, I mean, getting out... We're sort of heading connecting up with the old with that second fatigue story that I was just telling and at the end of 06 I bumped into or I came across a doctor who um, her theory was that that these kind of illnesses are caused by bacterial problems in the body at a, at a molecular level you know in your in, in, in your core structures of your cells so cut a long story short I basically went saw her she convinced me I got on the antibiotics program that, that she prescribed and uh, that was actually what hauled me out of that fatigue era and, and got me better again. Um, and I was able to get back to playing squash. At, at, I started in, at the end of 06 and it got better and better. As, and by that time I went to the Europeans in Rimini, I was, I was, start, I was starting to play pretty decent squash again. And, uh, um, and then, and then uh, heading into that match, I remember I was, I was the coach playing coach of the team. So we had, we had our team meeting as well. And, and I, being as I am, I, did an A4 sheet for all for everybody, including myself. <laughs> I made a game plan for everybody. So Deadfield had a game plan against you. Um, Nicky Miller had one against um, John Rooney. Uh, Holdy had one against Liam Kenny, although that wasn't going to really help him because Liam was far too good. And uh, and I obviously had one against Derek. And but uh, yeah, now that's that. I went on, and you were playing after uh, you were playing a Deadfield, and you were having an absolute monster five setter. Yeah. Um, but then our match turned out to be uh, even sort of dwarfed yours in terms of the monster stakes because it went for an hour and 55 minutes. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I remember we played, sorry, just later that day. And um, I remember one of the lads in our team, you know, wasn't too happy about playing a few hours later. Um, and myself and Derek were like, no, no, you know, we, we, you know, we can do this. And Derek in particular took lead in that conversation, being the senior members, like I've just played for an hour or for two fucking oops for two hours right <laughs> yeah. and, and, and in those days there was no like you know four hour or five hour gap because everything ran later so it was like you know you start at nine you finish at one o'clock 
and then the next game was scheduled for three o'clock, thinking to be finished at eleven or whatever. Uh, I'll never forget how inspiring that was. It was amazing. Yeah, uh, no, there was, it was it was uh, it was good. There were good times, and uh, that, uh, Derek's uh, certainly on the on the list of the toughest players I've ever played. That's for sure. <laughs> I've got a similar memory of a bit more recent, but again, going back to the Europeans where you played, <laughs> me, me or mine, you probably know another one, one. another yeah. loss. Can you bring up a win, you guys? Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> you won the world championships in all one big man. Come on, <laughs> thanks, mate. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> But no, that that was my. I think that was a. Was that your last Europeans when you played Chris Small? Uh, that was in thirteen in Amsterdam. Um, yeah, it was. I've got your remember. squash info bio up here, and it says that was the last time you played. Yeah, yeah. I was listed on the team actually. Funnily enough, in seventeen, I because the last time I sort of had a good a good phase where I trained uh, a bit was in early twenty seventeen because. Uh, the the, national, the the league team in Switzerland where I played for I was I was uh, quite keen to win that win that title that season as well for for the club and um, and got my level up to probably the best level it was had been in, certainly in the last sort of uh, five six years and uh, I was listed in this team in 2017 but I never I never actually got on court because uh, I was not uh, feeling good enough in that week but so 13 was that was the last yeah that was the last match. So how does squash look? You're obviously coaching in Switzerland these days and uh, Nicky Muller's kind of been their flag bearer for the last 10, probably longer, 15 years almost now. Um, how, how does squash look over in Switzerland and do you think they have a good crop of players coming through? Yeah, we do. We've got, uh, you know, sort of in-house. We, we've been talking about that for a while. We've got uh, really good structures, really good uh, setups in place. They've got national training centres. Um, which uh, I'm not actually officially, I, I mean, I'm still national trainer, which, which is correct, Arthur, but um, I'm not uh, doing so, many, so much hands-on training with, with the players via Swiss squash. It's more my own sort of private coaching because Pascal Bruin is, is, uh, is national trainer uh, for Switzerland and he does all of the, the on-court work. Uh, everything runs, it's very governmental now. Everything's running through, through Swiss Olympic and you, you have to have done all of the, the coaching uh, courses through the uh, the government sort of channels, and I haven't done that, so that's why I'm not uh, do, not officially doing so much coaching for Swiss squash. But I'll still go to the Europeans, and uh, if they if they need me at another event as as a, as a second coach, then then I'll still be there. And a lot of the players, obviously, they're still working with me. But the crops, you know, the the depth is really good behind even behind the obvious ones, which is Nicky Miller and even Dimitri Steinman, who's moving into the fifties now in the in the world rankings. Uh, We've got really good depth and uh, we've got players like Yannick Wilhelmi. Um, there's another guy called Niels Rush who you may or may not know, but he's got a fair bit of talent as well. And even through the younger, behind them through under 19, under 17, I see, I see good, good prospects heading forward. We're in a really, a really good spot, uh, spot on the back of uh, Nicky Miller being... Yeah, <laughs> cheers, mate. Uh, I was waiting, I was waiting and here he comes. Misha the monster, my son. Hey. Say hello, fellas. There he is. Do you want to say hello, mate? Hey, do you want to say something? Hello, uh, this, yeah, this guy's doing court sprints, by the way. Now, don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. It's. it's he wants to do them. I'm not forcing him to do them. <laughs> I say the same about my daughter. Similar age <laughs> yeah. to young Misha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not leaving until you do X a month. It's when he goes on yeah. the track to do four hundreds. You need to start worrying. <laughs> oh, I don't. I, I don't even want to take him near a track, mate. He'll just start running around it already at two years and two months. He's an absolute maniac. It's unreal. But no, I think that I think the the uh, the, uh, the talent pool is is very good, to be honest, Stu. And uh, um, I think that we have the potential if uh, we all keep working hard, the, the coaches and 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 the, and the players to to have the. If we can keep Nicky Miller uh, in there for another five years and and keep that'll be the the key sort of question because obviously at thirty one. Um, if he can maintain that level that he's still playing, I think that this, in particular, you know, I'm referring more to the men, of course, at the moment. Um, I think the men's team can can have you know the best sort of success rate at a European or, or international level in terms of teams events and stuff like that, and and also on the PSA tour in terms of numbers of players inside the top hundred. If uh, if if ever, if all of the stars line up and we can we can get it all together, I think there's a good chance that could happen over over the next decade. And then when you look um, at Australia, you grew up in a in a golden era, you had so many figures to look up to, like your Ken Hiscoes, your Jeff Hunts, and then you had like Rodney and Brett Martin, followed by the likes of yourself and Billy Hadgel and, and so on. And it's a totally different different scene back home. And 
what do you think about that? Is there a way? Well, there is a way forward. What do you think that that could be? That, that fortunes could change in Australia, Scottish Australia? I was actually laugh, laughing, Johnny, when you said earlier that you got kicked out of the institute because you were only thirty or twenty in the world at the time. What, <laughs> what, what, what Australia wouldn't give for that now? <laughs> yeah, I'd, uh, they would have. Yeah, a player like me, definitely at twenty-one years of age, though, I would have been welcomed with open arms because I would have walked in straight as number one currently. So. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really tough one, isn't it? Because uh, what happened in Australia, it's I think it's pretty common knowledge that the the real estate boom, which which you know is still going to till to uh, til today, um, just completely took over, and it wasn't viable for for you know for public centres to run with private ownership, which is you know we just didn't it wasn't set up in the same way as that it had been set up forever and a day in the UK or the northeast coast of of, of the United States or even Canada, you know, where you've got the the private club system there, which uh, which is, you know, the spine and the backbone of keeping squash really strong, I think, you know, and uh, we, we, we never had that in Australia. Um, it was all sort of public centre-based. So the public centre had to run and it had to be profitable. And as soon as it, uh, the real estate became too valuable, uh, the, the, the offers for, the, for those centre owners to just hand it over to, to somebody who wanted to build apartments was just too good. And then we started losing centres too fast. Outdoor sports in Australia grew very fast at the, in, the, in the second half of the 80s, basketball and soccer. And, um, and obviously, the, you got rugby league and Aussie rules. It's, just, it's such an outdoor sport nation and the weather is a heck of a lot nicer than what it is currently here in Switzerland, that's for sure. Um, so I think all of those factors combined just led to the demise, really, of Australian squash. Um, uh, funny, funny thing is, if you look at Pakistan, they're obviously suffered in the same sort of way. They've not been able to to bring uh, players. There's been no legacy there created to follow in the, in the, in the footsteps of the great uh, two JKs. Um, and uh, the, the answer to that question is really tough. I know Stuart Boswell is, you know, he moved from Qatar. He took over as the head of uh, elite performance in Australia. How do you, if you don't have the numbers of senders that, that, that are active, you know, bringing kids in, where is your talent pool going to come from? That's the, I think that's the, 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 uh, the, the big question, to be honest, guys. And uh, I think until you actually get squash, uh, uh, you know, a trend sport where people actually want to go and play it, kids want to go and play it, I don't think you're ever, you know, you're certainly not going to see that, that, that kind of level of squash that we had uh, in Australia, late 80s, early 90s with uh, winning world team titles where, you know, the Australian team went and beat Jahangir Khan and Jan Shikhan to win the world team title. So, um I don't see that happening in the, in the near future. And it's just going to be a battle even to get to produce players um, even today that, that are going to be good enough, given that we've, we've fallen back so far. You'd be, you know, you'd be happy if you can have a few players that are even going to be top 100 right now, to be honest, men or women. Yeah. Sorry to bring that, to be all doom and gloom about that. But I mean, <laughs> I'm just, just processing it. I'm like, yeah, I just knocked you off your feet. But I mean, it's, I'm, yeah, I suppose I'm being pretty blunt and honest about it, but I, I, there's no way. I mean, the people in Australia that are running the game down there, they, 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 they know that as well, that they, they, the challenges that they face are, are immense to, to build um, that up again, what, what, you know, what once was. And uh, uh, as we've sort of mentioned already you know, in, in, in this hour, that um, the professionalism of the, of the players that, that, are, that are already there and, and uh, doing their thing... Um, creating that environment that doesn't exist in Australia is, is, is going to be real, real tough, you know? Yeah. One of our earlier episodes, we had Jenny Duncalf on. Um, she's obviously now their sort of national junior coach or pathway development coach. Yeah. Um, and she, she was quite open as well about the challenges that they face and the fact that it's going to be a long-term pro- project and wouldn't expect to see significant results for at least sort of five to 10 years. So, like you say, I think they're well aware of the challenge that lies ahead and the fact that it's, it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, what do you got? I mean, you guys, uh, I don't know how the numbers are in terms of um, obviously college squash. I assume, Chris, you, you, you're the guy to ask there. College squash is still booming pretty strong over in the States. Um, I don't know whether junior numbers in general is like really good, really high. So um, I suppose the world, the world of squash is all, I mean, we've seen in the women now, with the Sobe sisters and, and even Olivia Fichter, we got they got some really good players in the women's that are moving into the top part of the ranks. Still waiting for that, you know, the couple of Americans maybe that uh, that make it to the top of uh, the, the PSA tree in squash. But what's the 
What's how how is the junior development system over there, and what are the numbers like at the moment? Yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I mean, all three of us are kind of in it now. Stewart's at Stewart's at Penn also, so he's he's my big rival now. Um, <laughs> and then and then Arthur's probably tapped in more to the junior scene, but yeah, we just had Jamie Nichols on, who took over at Squash Canada, and he said that's where he thinks Canada missed a little bit of an opportunity 10, 15 years ago is, is in the, in the middle schools and elementary schools and building out that way, which, which you touched on. Um, and, and I think that's the U S so many courts have been being built at, at, at schools. So you can get kids starting much younger and, and much bigger numbers. So you just have a way bigger funnel. Um, us junior squash, definitely, definitely solid, uh, gets deep like seems to be just getting deeper and deeper um and then yeah we you know we've we've had a couple college squash chats on on the recent podcast it's just kind of there's more there are more american guys and and women looking to make the jump to the pros so it's it's only a matter of time right before a few of them click um and, and there's definitely some good guys uh some good young guys that are that are kind of you know in into it and coming up so It'll be interesting. Yeah, def- yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the women have got the advantage now that you know, Sobey's had Amanda Sobey's had a fair bit of success, and uh, she's won a, she's won a World Series event, a World Tour event, and uh, her sister is 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 a big talent as well. And and uh, what I saw of Olivia Fichter in um, in Blackball back in December, she's she's a really uh, handy player as well. She could move higher. Olivia Blatchford Klein. So the players in the in the girls that would be coming through, they've already got four established players there that are you know, all pretty much inside the top 25 in the world. So that, that's, that's incredibly um, motivating for them, you know, so. Yeah. I've been training, I've been training with Olivia Victor a little here in New York. She's uh, I think she's poised to have a big tournament here. She's been, she's been playing well. Okay. Big call. Big call from yeah. Chris. Like yeah. it. That sort of leads us nicely on to looking ahead to the next uh, 12 days. John, are you going to be commentating or are you being left behind on this one? Yeah, I'm I'm sitting in my apartment back in Zurich, and as you know, it's starting the the, the women's is starting today, I believe. So um, uh, tomorrow, I think. I'll, tomorrow, sorry. Maybe today by the time this gets out. Depends how quick Arthur is on his editing. <laughs> yeah. I get it out. I get out tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, yeah. How do you see those draws playing out in terms of? Obviously, the last time we were there in December, you were there, and we had a couple of not necessarily huge shocks. Faris is maybe a bigger shock than SG, but. For both players, the biggest titles of their career, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they they back up in the first tournament back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the the big things for me is uh, can I mean, Dzukic's you know he's back on the same turf where where he performed so well, um, and that court is so he's pretty quick off the front wall, uh, very well suited to him. It takes a shot as well, obviously. So he, I'm really, I'm yeah, I'm really. Really wondering, can he can he produce that again? Can he be that strong as he was back in December? Because if he is, then you're talking about a guy that basically is wanting to cement his place in the top five very soon. And then and, and we've got a changing of the guard there at the top of the game. Somebody's going to get knocked out, and he's going to move up. You know, um, and as you mentioned as well, uh, Mustafa Asal is is a massive talent, um, very unique player, so powerful, so um, so dynamic. So he's going to threaten to to push through as well. Um, I thought what I find interesting then is okay. So if that's the case, who are the players that are perhaps you know on that on the cusp of just dropping back a few positions? And I was asking myself that question after after Blackball. Um, definitely Goward. I think I, I'm sort of wondering about what what's his appetite like for for the day in day out training schedule that obviously he he had back in 2016 when he was world champion. Yeah, like is and and world number one 16 through 17. Is yeah, I'm, I'm just I've got a question, a little cloud there as to whether or not um, he he's got the appetite to sort of work his way back to that kind of form. Um, Tarak uh, just a few signs of a few wobbles uh, at the end of last year in terms of the way he was playing, just falling back to a little bit of that so-called back to front squash, just going short a lot from behind, not perhaps sort of playing with that kind of structure he had, where which led into him being world champion at the end of 2019. Um, so he needs to answer those questions as well. And uh, I think Diego, Elias, everybody's 
still, you know, he's he's obviously that that unbelievable talent that people are waiting. You know, he's been hanging around seven, eight, nine in the world for a while. He's definitely good enough to move to the top five and, and be an established top four player. It's just a question of dedication and, and, and sustainability, I think, of fitness, you know? Yeah, we've talked about this in the past, but it's almost like there's too many players to be top five in the world. It's yeah, yeah. Seven or eight of them that should be in the top five, but... Yeah, it, it's it's great. It's a great, you know, with obviously with Rosner retiring and uh, um, you know Mohamed El Shabagi, I, I I haven't you know I'm, I haven't done my homework exactly on his ranking stats, but given that he's been sort of hot and cold a bit and missed a few events, uh, he's he's be pretty happy that <laughs> PSA just keeps extending that date in terms of uh, the sort of relief on the ranking because normally it's a twelve month calendar, but I think it's been pushed out even further now due to the pandemic. So he, he's the first one that's going to be happy about that because he needs to get some, some serious results on the board just to confirm that he is still one, two, three in the world, I think, you know. And he's back in the draw this week, or not this week, sorry, next week uh, after missing the Egypt, Egyptian tournaments. And the, exactly, the last exactly. Part of the season. I'm just looking at the draw now. and uh, I mean, Ali Farag's draw is absurdly difficult. So... Just to make the quarterfinals where he'd potentially have a rematch of his last final against Fares, he has to beat Mohamed Abulgar and Mustafa Asal probably just to make the quarters against Dasuki. Yeah. yeah, well, there's another there's another dark horse who floats about Abu Elgar. He's a guy you know, he, he proved it again in Blackpool after having a pretty sort of uh, dismal year. When he when he turns it on and he and he, he plays that that brutal sort of T line attacking game where He's, he's, he's able to hit such sharp, quick balls, straight and short, and then he whips the cross court in as well. Uh, he's he's a very difficult guy to defend against. And and even, I think Farah can, you know, he can potentially have problems with a guy like that. So with like, yeah, on the base of that draw, what you just mentioned, and then having to play Dazuki in the, possibly in the quarters, that's, yeah, that's tough, definitely. Asal as well in round two. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Pretty absurd. Um, I think great for the... You know, for the purists and for the fans, just looking to see some good squash from day one to day seven. Day one to day 12, excuse me. <laughs> and then another match that sort of stands out in, uh, in round two, actually, is uh, Gawad, who you mentioned, is maybe not at the level he was at a few years ago, but coming up against Wilstrop, who still seems to be playing at a pretty high level, had a great match with Joe Macon in the last black ball open. So, yeah, a lot yeah. to look forward to. Yeah, definitely. And Wilstrop, um, the, yeah, for me, Wilstrop's just, uh, he, he's, obviously he, he has to take a lot more care of his body and he has to listen to, to what his body's telling him and he can't put in the kind of workload definitely that he, that he, uh, he did when, you know, when he was world number one back in, in 20, 2011, 2012, around that time. But, I mean, what, like you said, what he showed, like squash-wise, uh, what he was doing on the court against Macon in, in blackball was unbelievable. Like the, you know, the, the ability to just, control the, the, the ball like it's on a string in, in, a, in a web design sort of court where he just picks where he wants to put it. Um, if Gawad's, yeah, if he's not switched on, uh, Wilstrop took, he, I mean, Wilstrop took him uh, in, in, uh, in 2019 right. in Qatar at the, in right. the world. So uh, he's already, he's already showed that uh, he's a danger man for, for Gawad, definitely. Yeah. And then in the women's draw, which uh, like we said, either starts today or tomorrow, depending on when this get, comes out. Um, I guess you've got SG, who's the defending champion again. Slightly unfortunate draw where she'd come up against Shabini in the quarters. Tough. It's a tough. It's a tough top half of the women's draw. Yeah. yeah. Shabini, Hania, SJ, and, and Joel seem strong. Seems like the the glitch in the matrix has been fixed though, because no Camille Hania matchup. Although they're seeded three and four, so they can't actually come up against each other in this event. So they're probably both pretty grateful for that. Unless it's the final. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but yeah, again, you've got people like um, Joel, who almost uh, made the final and lost in five to SG in the semis at last black ball open. Amanda, who took out um, Shabini. Uh, and had a good run. She's she's in a Camille's quarterfinal uh, quarter section. So um, yeah, should hopefully be plenty of good squash to keep us entertained over the next twelve days. Is it twelve or is it fourteen? I think it's fourteen actually. Fourteen, it is. Yeah, 
Yeah, because it's oh. there's bigger draw, draws. So. Yeah, your t- everybody's TV or just your computer will be just be running twenty four seven. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I I I think um, yeah, SJ. I'm, I'm sure she's not. I mean, she works with Rob Owen, so there's no way she's going to be. She won't have been given a chance after Christmas to just chill out and and, and relax on that win. She she won't be resting on her laurels. So. Um, she'll have been working really hard to solidify that, that improvement that she's made. And physically, she's just moving better around the court. And that's the big difference, isn't it? I mean, there was never a question about her skill level, her ability to be deceptive. Um, uh, big, you know, big, tall girl with, with, with an unbelievable uh, swing. So, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the level of squash that she's going to produce will be right up there again. But as you said, Shabini in the quarters, very, very tough. And, uh, I'm not I'm sort of. I probably I would lean towards Shabini there, just in terms of the matchup. You know, just uh, the fact that Shabini's going to, she's the way she just sort of cuts it in and and, and chops and changes around the front. It's going to be very awkward for SJ, I would say. Shabini always reminds me of Shabagi in the way that they sort of bounce back from disappointing events, and they seem to, they never really seem to have two or three bad events in a row. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So who are you picking, boys, to win? Give me a winner. In the women's and the men's. Let's all do it. Come on. All right. Um, I always I always tend to go with Shibini when I feel like she's either... It doesn't really matter. If she's playing well, I sit sort of back her because she's a form player. And when I think she's maybe not been playing as well, I back her because I don't think that it's going to last. So <laughs> she's, my, she's my go-to regardless. Okay. So it's a, it's, it's a calculated calculated pick. Stu never makes any risks. It's a, you know, <laughs> but he's probably the guy you want to if you're if you're going to put your house on or give money to to back to to make you some money. He's the guy you, you give it to. She's number okay. one in the world for a reason. I follow the numbers, follow the stats. Okay, and the men's Stu. Uh, the men's again is a lot more interesting open. Um, I, I look at Farag's drawing. I just. I struggle to see how anyone can come through that, if I'm honest. I mean, I know he can beat all of those players in a one-off match, but to do it back-to-back and then potentially have, I mean, the, the top two seats in the bottom half would be Shibagi and Paul Cole. So, um, and then you've also got people like Marwan, who was playing exceptionally well previously. But I would probably go with Shibagi. Again, I think he's the sort of character that bounces back not necessarily a setback, although he did have that big loss to Yusuf Ibrahim, but he always seems to respond well when he's backs up against the wall and people are sort of looking at him and saying, well, he didn't play as many tournaments and the one event he did play in Qatar, it didn't go as well as he wants. So I, I can see him being really hungry and although he's maybe lacked the match play, it's been so long that I don't know how relevant that is to have played a tournament three months ago that he missed. Yeah, definitely. Everybody's in the same boat there, aren't they? Anyway, so. Yeah. Oh, sorry, boys. I didn't even have the video on. Oh, brutal. There he is. Yes, you could. I mean, you're, are you the are you the are you the chief here, Arthur? Because you. Uh, we, we take we control of things a bit. We thought you might have been having a senior moment. We didn't want to pull you up on it, you know. Oh, my son just came in before to say good night, so he's he's gone now. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna go anti Stu. I'm gonna I'm gonna say whenever I went against Ali, he always proved me wrong, and he was kind of my pick for the first few events of uh, of last year, and he, he worked out more than he did. And so I'm gonna say Stewart's gonna be wrong. He's gonna walk through <laughs> those guys, and he's gonna win. And then um, I mean I don't see anyone walking through us out, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, and then women's side has just been so tough this year. Uh, they've been spreading the wealth around nicely. Um, I think I think I like Hania. Mm. Just she's tough hungry. Pick. Tough pick. It's a guess. Yeah. yeah, good safe pick there as well. I think. Yeah, don't see her losing early. Yeah. Arthur's usually our wild card picker. <laughs> yeah, he, he likes to throw a spanner in the works and just mix it up. So. Yeah, just for shit, just for kicks. I just yeah, it's hard though. But I, I, I'm going to go with uh, uh, Marvin. Marvin, uh, Marvin El Shabagi. He's clever as a bag of cats. His, and I just think... wild card. Yeah. 
I think he's got. I, I like that. That's a little bit left field. I like that. Yeah, but there's a bit of logic to it as well. I mean, he played unbelievable for periods of time last season. It was a strange old season, and I know it didn't finish as well for him. But I think he's going to be the man to beat next week. And I mean, I could be wrong. Depends if John. Depends if John Massarella is out there refereeing him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, hard. it's a sunny place, Stuart, so he will be there. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, he hopefully he doesn't get a bit of sunstroke uh, before he. Uh, Gets on with Marwan and for the women, I I don't know. I'm a huge fan of Hanya El Mami. Just love how hungry she is when she's on the court and so gutsy. Uh, Camille Serm, I'm gonna go Camille Serm. She's deal. She yeah. It I just feels think she's, like she's deal. I'd say there's a. I saw an interview with uh, Vanessa Atkinson earlier in the week, and it just made me think. If I tried to put myself in her shoes, if I was three in the world, would well, I be pretty happy? To be honest, but. Uh, she obviously is really eyeing up either a world number one or a, a world championship victory. And I would say this period of time would be very important for her to achieve either of those. Um, I wouldn't say it's a last chance saloon, but I would say there are less days ahead of her than there are behind. So with that in mind, I would say that she's, yeah, she's my pick. All righty. So now, I mean, the squash TV commentator definitely has to know his stuff, doesn't he? Otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, you're goosed. Be out of job soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you're um, on for a reason. You're the expert on this. Well, we were all experts. Everybody's an armchair expert at the end of the day, aren't they? So uh, we, we, everybody loves to think that they know everything. But uh, thirty, yeah, I mean, uh, like it, it's it, it like uh, you guys have said, it's just so with so few events going on, players are coming in, you know. Really, uh, they're fighting all of those doubts and uncertainties that they may have about whether or not they can execute the, the, the game styles that they were so used to doing day in, day out for until the, the tour got shut down pretty much a year ago. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in the means, I'm gonna go with Stu. I do believe that also that Mohamed El Shabagi is one of the best back to the wall players around, and he had a terrible Qatar, obviously, he didn't play well. Um, he will be chomping at the bit, and uh, uh, Rodney Martin, uh, who I work with a bit as well, um, he's been doing some some pretty awesome podcasts. By the way, I just want to throw that in there because I've been really Stop enjoying the rivals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been loving listening to Rodney talk about the, the details of just uh, what you know what he believes it takes for players to become you know top line players, and, and really going into the nitty gritty of it all, talking about talent and players that have less talent and understanding you know what what you know, identifying what kind of player you are. I, just, I found that fascinating. It's just, it was brilliant. Yeah, but um, brilliant. yeah, I think that, uh, that Muhammad uh, is going to be tough to beat based on, I haven't got the draw in front of me, but based on what you said before, Stu, with that kind of draw that Ali's got as well, that he's going to be, he's got some real stiff uh, opposition just, just to get to the semis and finals. So uh, I'll go with Muhammad. And, and I uh, also think that, um, uh, Hania El Hamami is just uh, she just seems to be never satisfied like with uh, coming second basically she was filthy about losing in uh, in December Abs- like she was inconsolable after that final like she she was absolutely like fuming um, and uh, you know she she was uh, very very close to winning um, and she just her game style is obviously so solid she's hard to break down she doesn't hit a lot of uh, unforced errors and you can bet your bottom dollar that she's been training her backside off. Um, still thinking about that loss uh, to, to, to want to make it one better again uh, in here in March. So I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with what I know she's, and she's a, she don't forget she won her first world tour event there uh, in black ball in March of uh, 2020, just before the lockdown and then was runner up obviously in the event in December. So she's got her track record there is uh you know, as we say, she's she likes that track. She likes to run on that track, that's for sure. Well, Deadly John, listen, thanks a million for, for coming on, for sharing your story and your insights uh, into what we will be looking forward to watch over the next 14 days. And, yeah, look forward to hopefully seeing at the Europeans soon, hopefully. Must be due on his next appearance, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll get Derek out there as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've been, well, obviously, I, I bump into Derek and... I, and we, we still reminisce about uh, 2007 and, and all that stuff. But, uh, um, 
yeah, the Europeans is planned uh, for uh, August 2021, I think. Yeah, I saw that. I don't know how Any realistic. Any chance I'll see you there with the, with, the, with the green and whites on, Arthur? Or I hope so. I mean, I'm vaccinated and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll see. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's, it depends. I mean, it depends on a number of things. Um, firstly, you know, from travel standpoint, is that realistic? Is it possible? Is it going to require a 14-day quarantine or just a couple of COVID tests? Uh, and then secondly, I suppose, there's been such a gap with Irish squash. I mean, the last event we had was the Nationals in February 2020, um, which I, I did win. So hopefully that is enough to sort of say that I'm st- still in reasonable shape. Um, I'm still keeping we, ticking we over. We can vouch for you. We can vouch for you here. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to play, like take somebody else's spot if I didn't add value. And I think it's just being a senior member of the team. Uh, I certainly don't want to be playing number one, but nor, nor am I the number one. But I still think I can add a lot to the team from an experience and help pass on some a million mistakes that I made when I was a teenager. And there's some young, good teenagers coming through. So, I, yeah, I'd, I think it, uh, I'd love to be a part of it, but we'll see. It's hard to displace the, uh, the the national champion as recent as 2020, mate. Gee whiz. I think well, that deserves a spot. Well, if John Williams says it, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll see. All right. A lot of fun, John. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. It was uh, it was fabulous. Really enjoyed it, and uh, hope that uh, yeah brought a brought a few uh, sort of different insights for for people out there, the forty two listeners that are that are tuned in. <laughs> yeah, I think you're going to bump us to like forty eight. We might even <laughs> have fifty. <laughs> new ones. Love it. Awesome. Thanks, Willie John. Legend. No, thanks very much for the uh, for the invite. It was an honour, and uh, look forward to listening to more podcasts from you guys. Thanks very much. Legend. Cheers. Man. Cheers. Cheers. Stay well. Cheers. Bye bye.